Hey, uh, this week we're concluding this series called Triggered. Uh, we've been looking at how to deal with offense. Uh, we started off on Easter Sunday looking at the offense of the cross and the realization that our faith itself, Jesus, our Savior, came in an offensive manner and offended much of the world because of the message that he brought, that salvation is only found through him and that we are indeed sinners and lost and separated from God, headed to hell for all eternity, and that we need saving. And that message is offensive. Jesus warned people not to trip over him, right, as a stumbling block, but to find God through him. And so we realize that our faith itself is filled with offense. But as we've looked at this topic, this series, uh, we've been pressing into the reality, the reality that we live in a sinful world. And that means that you are surrounded by sinful people. Yes, in your chair right now, you're surrounded by sinful people and they are going to hurt you. It is inevitable. They're going to hurt you. And so you're going to have to learn how to work through this, how to deal with offense. The other piece of this is, and I'm, I'll whisper it so your neighbor can't hear, but the truth is you're a sinner too. So you might hurt somebody else on occasion, right? So this is the nature of our lives. And so we've got to learn to deal with this, to wrestle with it. And admittedly, it's a difficult topic. It's hard to wade into. As a pastor, this is hard work because I'm sort of slugging it out with you to, to deal with this, to acknowledge it. And it's hard. One of the reasons is that it appeals to something in us that is good. The reason that this is, uh, you know, the, the compliment to this series is a book called The Bait of Satan. And encourage you to grab that book and read through it. There's a 30-day devotional guide at the back of the book. It'll walk you through the whole book and the topic. And let me tell you, it's intense. It's not easy. It's a difficult topic because it brings up a lot of emotion and it brings up resistance. The reason that this is a trap that Satan wants you to get stuck in is because if you step into the trap of offense, and if you stay in it, your Christian life will, life will be weak and ineffective. You will not be living on mission, reaching others for Jesus, being example of him in the world. You will be powerless because you'll be trapped in offense. And so Satan has a lot of motivation to try to trap you in this. And it's one of the things he works really hard at. And admittedly, it's hard for us because uh, you guys know that a trap uh, is dangerous. And most time, little critters even have a sense that there's a trap. You know, the mice that you try to trap in your house, you know, mice avoid traps because they know they're there. They know something's wrong, right? They don't cognitively know what, what it is, but they know there's something wrong. It doesn't look right. And the reason that traps work is because we put bait in them. And the bait overcomes the little critter's hesitancy, right, to step into it. And so the same thing is true for us. We call this the bait of Satan, this idea of offense, because there's powerful bait in the trap. If there wasn't bait in the trap, we would avoid it. But the bait that's in the trap appeals to us, and it appeals to that part of us that actually is something good. We have a desire for justice to happen. We have a desire to see justice done in the world. And so when something's done wrong towards us, we want it to be made right. Now that's correct. That comes from the character of God. It's correct that we want justice. Here's the problem, though. Satan does not put the bait of justice in the trap. 
as Satan always does, being a liar and a deceiver, he puts something in the trap that smells like justice, it looks like justice, and we are tempted to think that it is justice. But in truth, what he puts in the trap is revenge. And revenge is the bait, and it appeals to your desire to see justice done, but it's twisted. And so you will be tempted to grab the bait of revenge and to hang on to it. And the problem is that Satan tells us that revenge will make us feel better, and revenge does feel good, like all sin feels good, but it doesn't leave us feeling better. It leaves us stuck in a trap. Traps ultimately corrupt us. Revenge corrupts our souls and our emotions. It clogs us up and again leads to a powerless Christian life where we can't seem to get things figured out. We can't seem to uh, experience joy and peace, right? There's constantly drama around us and conflict and we're stuck in it. And the truth is traps do result in our death and destruction. On On a February day back in 1925, many years ago, A fellow by the name of Floyd Collins climbed into a sand cave looking for treasure. The problem is, as he went deeper and deeper into the cave, uh, he was under the ground, cried a ways. As he was navigating, his lamp went out, so he couldn't see what he was doing, and he nudged, somehow, a large boulder that ended up in him nudging it with his leg. It fell, it shifted, and fell on his leg, trapping him 125 feet underneath the ground in this cave. And so he's, he's calling out for help. He's crying for help. He's trapped in a, in a, a small space. It was about eight inches high and about 12 feet long. Horrible sp- uh, spot to be trapped. But as he called out for help, people heard him. And they ended up coming to try to rescue him. But along with that came a bunch of people to watch the show. So about 50,000 people came to check out this uh, situation. And they bought hot dogs and popcorn balloons, and they sat out to see what would happen. And the the sad story is that they weren't able to rescue poor Floyd. He ended up dying down in the cave, trapped there. And that's the truth about traps. They catch us and they hold us, and without help, if, if we're not released from the trap, then they do lead to our destruction. And the same is true of this trap of offense. We have got to find our way out of it. And so this week, I want to look at the idea of an escape And and I've called this message the great escape because there is a way out. The good news is, or or the bad news is, Satan wants to trap us in this. And I'm telling you, at some point, you will be trapped in this trap. I have been and you will be, okay? Um, And and if not you, then certainly the person next to you, which you have to live with them probably. And so, you know, you're going to have to deal with this. But the good news is God wants to get you out of it. And he offers a way out. And he offers to help you out, which is the amazing thing. And so as with all things, as your pastor, I'm willing to press into this, even if it's a little uncomfortable for you and you're a little, uh, you fidget a little bit and you wish I wouldn't push so hard. I'm willing to do it because it's so important, not because I enjoy it, but because it's so important for you to discover the way out of this trap and how to stay out of it. The Apostle Paul, who was an apostle, he uh, spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And you could argue that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was single-handedly responsible for much of the advancement of the gospel. You know, he started off uh, against the message of Jesus. 
If you know his story, he was against it. He was a Pharisee and he thought that Jesus was a false Messiah and he thought the people following Jesus were in error and so he was working to stop it, to to shut it down. Um, He was willing even to kill and imprison Christians or followers of the way to try to stop this movement. But Jesus had an encounter with Paul on the road to Damascus where Paul was, um, was confronted by Jesus Light flashed so bright that he went blind. He was knocked off the animal he was on. And Jesus spoke to him. And as a result of this encounter, Paul switched teams. He went the other direction. He recognized that he was doing the wrong thing in trying to stop the movement of the way. And he needed to start to advance it. Now the truth is, Paul lived a conflicting, a life filled with conflict and filled with offense. Because he represented Jesus He now represented a faith movement that was illegal. In Rome, it was an illegal religion. So to be a Christian was to be an offense to the Roman Empire. And then he was a Jew, and certainly all the Jewish people, for the majority, thought that Jesus was a false Messiah. Certainly the Jewish leaders did. And so they were working to stop this movement. And all of a sudden, Paul is working to advance it. So he offended almost everyone that he encountered. He was an offense. Secondly, Because he was advancing this message that was offensive, he also faced persecution. I heard a preacher one time give a a sermon about the Apostle Paul's back and what it looked like because of the beatings he took for advancing the gospel. It was not easy. And so he could have been a dude that was bitter and offended all the time because of things that had been done to him. He was just trying to do what was right. He was doing what God called him to but he was getting pounded for it. See, the Apostle Paul could have been filled with offense, and yet he lived a life in such a way, he found a way, he approached life in such a way as to not live caught in this trap. In Acts chapter 24, the Apostle Paul gets a chance to um, give his testimony and speak to Felix. He says these words in regard to this issue. He says, but I admit I'm a follower of the way, which they call a cult, I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try, listen, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. So Paul's working to keep a clear conscience, to do the right thing before God. And listen, can I tell you that to live and walk in offense and unforgiveness towards others is sin? You cannot have a clear conscience before God if you're living in that, if you're caught in that trap. And also, Paul worked to have a clear conscience before people. So he was constantly working in spite of the fact that he was offensive and was offended by people. He was constantly working to live free of that. The truth is that you and I have that same opportunity and responsibility If we claim to follow Jesus and we claim to have trusted in him, then he's going to place upon us the expectation that we work through this, that we find a way out of the trap and then we stay out of it. And the truth is we can discover that, but it will not be easy. You will be challenged. I just heard a guy um, uh, given his story. It was an interview um, with Ben Shapiro. The guy's name's Larry Elder. He's like a, a leader. He's an African-American man, and he speaks uh, on the radio and stuff. And I got to hear him telling his story, and he shared that at 15 years old, he got offended by his dad 
and he didn't talk to him for like 15 or 20 years. He didn't speak to him. He lived in the same house. He, he got through high school, graduated, went off to college, and finally he got convicted about it and came back and had a conversation with his dad, and it changed his life. But the truth is, guys, if we figure this out, how to walk in this in victory here, your marriage could be saved. Your uh, relationship with your kids could be saved. Your relationship with your parents could be saved. Your family dynamic could be healed and, and helped. And so obviously it's a big issue. It's so important that we discover how to handle this the way God wants us to. But the truth is, just like anything, the first step is to admit that you have a problem. See, the, tra- uh, the first step uh, to getting out of a trap is to realize that you're in one. And this can be the hardest thing because this particular issue comes with it, the feeling and the sense of being justified and righteous in my offense. Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he wrote these words regarding the Christian faith. He said, starting in verse 30, he said, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Therefore, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. The apostle says, listen, guys, you've been bought by Jesus. You belong to him. You're saved and experiencing salvation through him. Therefore, you have a responsibility to do some things, to move out of the pattern of sin that you're caught in. And offense, and to be caught in offense, is to be caught in a sin pattern. And so to step out of that, you got to understand there's a responsibility, there's an accountability to move out of this sin trap and to find the way of escape and to find the way of victory. Jesus has called you to a different life. Listen, salvation comes by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, right? Not of works, so no one can boast about it. Your salvation doesn't come because of your effort. It comes because of your faith. To trust in the work of Jesus. But when you're justified and made right before God, an aspect, a component of your salvation is you're now sanctified. You're now sanctified, which means you're set apart and God expects you to begin to live differently, to be obedient to him, to follow him. And this is one of those steps. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote these words. He presses pretty hard on this issue of living out your faith. James chapter one, starting verse 19, he says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it is the power to save your souls. And check this out. But don't just listen to God's word. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. He goes on to say that our salvation, if it doesn't produce change in us, that it's powerless, it's pointless, it has no ability to save. And so we find that the scriptures press us in, in this direction of change and transformation and obedience to God. 
Listen, we can, when faced with a sin issue, we can be defiant. We can stiffen our necks and fold our arms and say, nope, I'm right. I'm not moving. I know you don't do that, but the person next to you probably does. Maybe you've seen it before. Maybe you've got some kids and they do it, right? We can get defiant and stiff-necked. We can resist that move. I don't know if you've ever seen a monkey trap, um, but a monkey trap is one where um, uh, it's used to trap monkeys, and what it is is um, it's a gourd that has a hole in it, right? And the hole is cut fairly small, just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in um, like this, but inside is some bait. And so um, the monkey will grab that bait, and once he's done that, his hand makes a fist, and then it's too big to get out of the hole. Now, uh, the monkey could get out of the trap if he just let go of the bait. He'd slip his hand out. But a monkey will never do that. He will hold on to the bait. He will not let go. And the truth is, sometimes we act like that. We can resist what God's trying to get us to do. Uh, Again, I know you would never do that. That's a silly illustration. You would never do that. But maybe you know somebody that has and that lives that way with that kind of stubbornness. You know, but uh, I can certainly be that way. I can hold on to things and say, God, no, I'm right here. I appreciate, Holy Spirit, I appreciate what you're trying to tell me, but you got to understand, I know what's going on here, right? And so we can have that problem. And and the issue is, and, and the reality is that sometimes our behaviors to deal with offense— the ways in which we live, right, our, our natural pattern, our human nature, what we discover will help us in dealing with other people who are hurting us and offending us and how we should handle that. We have our own patterns of behavior. The truth is we think those patterns will lead to our protection, our safety. They'll get us out of the problem. But the truth is they really work to ensure that we are trapped in the offense. And so they don't work. We've got to learn a different pattern of behavior We've got to learn what God is teaching us about how to handle this. The truth is that that is the only way out. We've got to acknowledge that we are stuck in a trap. I've got some evaluation questions for you, some things to think about that might be indicators that you're struggling with this, maybe even that you're caught in this trap. First of all, first question, are you prone to react in anger or irritation to the behaviors of the people you encounter? Are you prone to react with irritation and anger to others? Now listen, there's days that we all wake up, wrong side of the bed, not feeling quite right, okay? But are you in a pattern of thinking you're surrounded by a bunch of idiots, Are you in a pattern? I know you wouldn't expect a pastor. I'm saying you've maybe thought that before. I haven't. I'm saying maybe you have. But here's the thing. Maybe you're in that pattern where it's like, ah, why am I surrounded by these people? Listen, you know my little illustration. If you meet a jerk in the morning, they're a jerk. If you meet jerks all day long, you're the jerk, right? (laughs) Come on, come on. I know I'm meddling. I know I'm pushing, but we've got to become aware of our situation here. What's the reality? And we can get justified in what we're doing. We can think that we're right. Listen, if everybody around you is a problem, if you find yourself constantly angry and irritated at people, maybe it's a sign that you're carrying some wounds due to offense that you haven't dealt with yet. 
And that is one of the indicators. Second evaluation question. Do you find yourself thinking about an issue with a person long after you're not around them anymore? Do you find that you keep working over that conversation or what you're going to do or how you're going to handle it? Now, listen, we all have uh, issues that are conflict in nature. We've got to process through how we're going to deal with it. Okay, this is normal. But I'm saying, are you caught in a pattern where you can't get an issue or a person out of your mind? It's keeping you awake at night. You're processing. You're thinking about what you need to do, how you're going to fix it, how you're going to solve the problem, how you're going to make them pay for what they've done or fix them, right? This could be a sign that you're internally trying to get some of, rid of some emotional pain that you have due to an offense. That's what an offense is, by the way. It's a hurt. That's what the word means. And so we end up hurt by these interactions with people. This is a sign, just an evaluation question. Do, give yourself this test. Third one is, do you constantly feel the need to push, to force others to do what you want when they won't respond to your influence and what you're suggesting. Make a nice suggestion. Hey, guys, we should do this. And then people don't listen to you and they go a different direction. You find yourself upset and you got to step into that and try to make everybody go the direction you want. Okay? Could be that you have an offense, you have an attitude or issue with being taken seriously. You don't feel like people listen to you. No one listens to what I have to say. That is an offense that you can walk with through life. Creates a chip on the, on the shoulder, creates an attitude issue whenever things don't go the direction you think they should. Listen, it's just a sign that maybe you're wrestling with that. How about this? Do you get upset when you don't get your way? Do you react emotionally when someone corrects you or tells you you're wrong? These are just signs and indicators. This is a complex issue. There's lots of angles to it. I'm not pretending in a couple of sermons to help you with this issue completely, I just want, I'm prayerful that the Holy Spirit would use some of this and the scriptures here to speak to our hearts. Help us realize that we might have an issue here. If you don't think you have an issue here, <laughs> that could be a sign that you do. You've got to figure out that we're gonna hap- this is going to happen to us, and we've got to figure out the way to deal with it. So once you come to the realization that you're now caught in a trap of offense, the next issue is how to get out. How to get out? Well, the way out of the trap, listen, is to allow God to release you from it. If you've ever seen some of the videos on YouTube and stuff of critters getting caught, the only way they get out without chewing a leg off, okay, that's not ideal. I don't want you to have to chew a leg off to get out of this trap, okay, Um, metaphorically speaking. But here's the deal. The other way is for a kind-hearted soul to come along and let them out and free them. And in this case, God is the kind-hearted soul that wants to come and let you out of this trap. Now, there's some things that you and I need to do in order to, you know, know, that's saying, help me help you, right? God says that, hey, guys, help me help you. I want to help you, but I need you to do some things. I need you to make some adjustments. Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul again, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Philippi, he addresses this issue of conflict and offense. He says, now I appeal to Yodia and Synthachi, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. 
saying, listen, we did ministry together. We served, and there was these two women that right in there, they were part of my team, and we, we were making a difference. We were making an impact. We were serving together. And then Paul left, called away uh, to continue to plant more churches and to advance the gospel. And meanwhile, a disagreement rises up, and, and the ministry is hindered. And what the church is trying to do there uh, gets stopped or slowed down. And, and that's the reality of what can happen. And so he asks them, listen, please, get this sorted out. Get it worked out. And, and that's kind of the posture that I need us to realize we need to be in. If we're going to work our way, if we're going to get out of the trap of offense, I'm going to tell you there's no way out unless God releases you. You're not going to get out of this on your own without losing a limb, okay? But God will release you. But in order for that to happen, you have to posture and position yourself in such a way that he can. And so I've got a, a, just a six-step process to work through. And the reason I know this process, because I know the scriptures a little bit, and because I've had to do it. And that's just a reality, okay? Um, God makes me preach on things that I struggle with. And this is one of them. And so here we go. Six steps to get out of the trap of offense. First one's the hardest. It's always the hardest. First step is to humble yourself before God. When we get offended, it is our pride that is hurt. And it is our pride that will keep us in the trap. And so the truth is that we need to get humble before God. The scriptures tell us to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility is difficult, but we control our posture towards humility. We choose to humble ourselves. So that's the first step. It's the hardest. The second step is after I've humbled myself, secondly, I surrender to God's authority. I don't sit there and say, okay, God, I appreciate your opinion on this, but I know better, you know. No, we submit, we surrender to his authority. He tells us what to do, and then we do it out of an act of obedience. It is the only way to walk with God. It's the only way to get out of this trap. Step three, release the person from the offense. That's easy to write down. It is difficult to do. Releasing them, is release is a great word because that's what you've got to do. This is a mental release. It's a spiritual release. It's an emotional release. It is to let them off the hook of the offense. That doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean that it was, it was justified what they did or that it wasn't sin or it didn't hurt or that you're forgetting about it, never to deal with it again. There are other steps that you might need to take to deal with it, which we'll look at in a minute, but you must release it. That is, the, that is the process. It's part of the process. You can't get around it. Step four, which goes along with that, is that when the offense or the person comes back to mind, continue to push the offense out of your mind and out of your heart. Forgive them again and 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 again. And again, and again. Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond. Forgive them, okay? Keep going. No, just when you thought you were done. Nope, keep going. That's when you're just starting to forgive them, okay? When you got tired of doing it in your mind and your heart. Now that's the beginning. Now you're started. Keep going. Until they stop coming to mind all the time. Until the issue is out. Sometimes it takes a long time. It's a discipline. It's a discipline to do this. A mental and emotional discipline. Step five, allow God's love to enter your heart and mind. First, love them 
by treating them the right way. You know, God calls us to love others. He calls us even to love our enemies. Jesus said this. Now, love, if we see it as an emotion or a feeling, (laughs) we're never, perhaps ever, going to love our enemies. Now, perhaps we can achieve that position, but that's pretty difficult. You're probably not going to, your heart's not going to skip a beat when your enemy's walking towards you. Oh, yippee, I get to do something good to them. No, that feeling may not be there, but here's what you can do, is in spite of the feeling, you can treat them in a loving way. You can do a loving action to them. Be respectful, be kind, respond correctly. That's love. And in the Bible, love is a verb, right? It's not a feeling. And so you can love with your actions before the feelings line up. Now, I believe if you do the right thing and you move in that direction, you ask God to help you out of this trap, that he will bring you to a place where your feelings and emotions and your real heart is for them and you have transitioned the way you feel about them from anger and hurt to actual love and affection. You can achieve that and see that happen. But first step is to take action, to do the right thing. And then step six, continue to forgive them and release them as they perhaps reoffend by committing the same act. Now listen, this is a, a difficult process, but that is the step process. And I know it because as I've said, I've got to do it. And, and I've got to continue to do it. This is, the, this is the process. It's not easy. It's hard, but it comes through humility and surrender and obedience to God. There are times, the Bible speaks to this, where we've got to address an issue. We have an offense, something's been done to us, and Jesus, in Matthew 18, teaches about a process of reconciliation where confrontation's involved. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, listen, if somebody sins against you, then you're to go to them individually, one-on-one, and present the offense. Hey, you've sinned against me. And if they if they uh, confess it, if they see your position and their heart is open and they respond, right, by confessing and, and all that, then you've won your brother over and there's, there's a relationship restored. But Jesus says if they don't respond, then you should take two or three witnesses with you and because there needs to be accountability, the person's obstinate, they're not willing to acknowledge the issue, then you take two or three witnesses, you continue, you, you confront again, and the hope is there that with some accountability, with some other people there, the person would, would acknowledge, they relent, come to a place where they acknowledge what they've done and they're willing to, uh, to confess it, right? And hopefully that works. Jesus says, if that doesn't work, you take them in front of the whole church. And now you've got a, a group dynamic and accountability. Now, when you take along two or three witnesses, what's required with that is that those two or three people agree with you that it's not just a disagreement. They didn't just say something you didn't like. It's not a personality problem, but actually there's sin involved, okay? So that's an important piece of this. But we're looking for restoration and reconciliation. There's accountability. There's pressure put on. If you go in front of the whole church and the person still doesn't respond, then Jesus says, treat them like an unbeliever. Because only a person that's walking far from God is not going to respond to this process of reconciliation and restoration. And so if we're in that place, or someone else is in that place, then there's a serious problem. Now with this, this is is a pretty intense way of handling things. And I think what's required here, there's a responsibility on the part of myself, if I'm in this position where I've been sinned against, that again, I've talked to some people, I've gotten a corroboration that there actually is a sin issue here that I need to deal with. 
and then I work towards restoration. I go to them and I try to win them over. And my presentation should be such that I'm not just going to pound on them, right? I'm not just going to punch them back, but I want to see a turning away from what's happened. I'm looking for wholeness and healing in the midst of it. The truth is that Jesus goes on in Matthew 18 to talk about the next issue in relation to conflict and offense. And he spends more time on this component of it. It's found in the same chapter. This paragraph follows the one that I just taught on. Matthew 18 verse 21 teaches on another component of this. And these go together. This is what Matthew 18, verse 21 says, Then Peter came to him, that is to Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, I'm not a math major, but I think that's 490. Forgiving somebody 490 times is way more than you think you could ever do or that you'd ever be expected to do. But Jesus goes on to tell a story, an illustration. He says, there was a king who ran a kingdom, and he uh, one day got his accountant in. He was looking at people that owed him money, and he found a guy that had some outstanding debt. So he brought him in. He said, listen, buddy, you need to pay off your debt. Well, the guy said, I don't have any money. I can't do it. Please have mercy on me. And the king said, wow. He felt compassionate and kind, and so he said, you know what? I'm just going to forgive your debt. And he wrote it off. The man walked out from his meeting with the king free and clear. Well, he went home immediately. He looked through his accounts to see who owed him money, made him think about it. And so he brought in the people that owed him money. And he said, listen, I need you to pay up. And when he had a couple people say, I can't pay, I don't have the money, please don't throw me in prison. He threw him in prison. Oh, you gotta pay up. Jesus said, that servant is wicked. He goes, listen, if you go to God over and over again, needing forgiveness for the same thing, and then you turn around and won't forgive somebody else? Mm -mm. But that's the situation we're in. When we decide to be defiant and say, I'm not going to do it for whatever reason, Jesus says, uh, no, you will do it. If you want to come and ask me for forgiveness again, then you're going to forgive them. Now listen, these two passages of how to handle offense come together. And so to deal with someone, to confront them, and to try to work through an offense to find reconciliation, and let's say they're obstinate about it, you know what that doesn't do, that process? It doesn't free me from the responsibility to forgive them. So I must forgive regardless. And listen, if I walk through the confrontational process, what I'm doing is I'm serving them through it, and I'm looking to help them to help them grow, to help them overcome their issue with sinning against others. I'm not just doing it to get my issue resolved. And so we, we learn in all of this because of the way Jesus teaches on it that this is something we've got to figure out, but it can be extremely difficult. Corey Ten Boom, who uh, lived during the era in which uh, the Nazis were in power and Hitler running Germany and taking over much of Europe. Corrie Ten Boom was a, a girl who uh, had a family who didn't agree with Hitler, and they actually worked to try to save some of the Jews, to rescue them and get them out of the country to freedom. Well, they were caught doing this and thrown in the concentration camps themselves. And Corrie Ten Boom survived this ordeal 
She lived through it. She was a follower of Jesus, and so her faith also survived. But much of, if not all of her family, died in the concentration camps. Well, Corrie Ten Boom, as the war ended and as, uh, as freedom reigned, she was able to go and teach, and she would visit Europe and teach in churches. And at one point in 1947, she was in Munich teaching in the basement of a church on forgiveness of all things. And as she's working through her talk, all of a sudden, she makes eye contact with an individual at the back of the room. This was a man that was balding, had a trench coat on. But what she saw was that same man in a Nazi uniform, a guard in the concentration camp that she was imprisoned in and that her sister died in. And this uh, guard was one of the cruelest. What he had done to her and been responsible for was unforgivable. Yet here she is teaching on forgiveness, making eye contact, and recognizing this man. Well, after the talk to her dread, he walked to the front of the room to engage her, reached out his hand to shake it. As he did, she said, I was frozen. I was filled with anger and hatred for what this man had done, and yet here he was looking to me. Well, he began to speak, and he said, listen, you mentioned a concentration camp at Ravensbrook, and he said, sadly, I'm ashamed to say it, but I was a prison guard there. Of course, he didn't recognize her, though she recognized him, and he said, I'm ashamed of what I did there, but after the war, I came to faith in Jesus. My life's uh, been transformed, and he said, thank you for your encouraging words in your talk that our sins are at the bottom of the sea. They're gone. And he said, it would encourage me so much if you would reassure me of that. Since you were in that camp, are my sins really forgiven? And she had to say, she knew what she had to say. And yet she was frozen. As she stood there contemplating her response, she records in her book, what took place internally as she was confronted with this situation. She said, I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven. I could not forgive. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. As I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand out to the one stretched out to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The, the current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes, I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. If you can move to the place and work to the place where God can release you from the trap, and he will, the next step is to stay out of it. Jude 25 and 20, uh, 24 and 25 says this, Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, all glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time, in the present, and beyond all time in the future. Jesus will release you from the trap, and he will help you stay out of it. 
You must utilize the resources. We've been learning in the four chair discipleship. We have resources that Jesus used. We have the, the power of the Holy Spirit. He's present in your life if you're a follower of Jesus. He is there and you must access his power in order to forgive and to move beyond offense. You also need to utilize prayer to the Father. You have access to the throne of God. You can talk to him directly and God will encourage you and help you move to release people from offense and stay out of this trap. You also have the word of God that's been preserved for you so that you can read it and you can process it. You can carefully pour over it, as James says, and allow it to trans, uh, transform your life. And last year, you have key relationships, and that's what Jesus had, and you can have those relationships that'll encourage you in the right direction. Listen, uh, we get caught in this trap, and I want for you to get out of it. It's what I need, it's what you need, and as reluctant as we might be and at times resistant to getting out of this trap, we've got to because the call of God is so great. As we take communion to end the service, I just want to encourage you to prayerfully consider what the Holy Spirit might say into your life. Maybe he'd reveal to you that you're caught in this trap and you need to find the way out and then you need to take the steps to get out of it. God will help you and that's my prayer for you. See, as Jesus sat with his disciples at that last meal and he said to them, I'm going to take some bread as he took that loaf of bread and broke it and passed it around. He said, take and eat from this. This uh, is my body. It represents my body that's been broken for you. And, uh, and so he, um, in that moment, said to them, I have done this, or I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to be broken for you. Boy, this thing doesn't want to let me have the bread. Well, I'll just do it. Hey, um, uh, sorry. Um, if, you, if you peel back the little foil on top, it should let you at that little wafer. But um, this is what Jesus was saying. Listen, my body's going to be broken for you. I'm going to the cross to be broken so that you can have victory over sin. So you can find salvation in me. And so um, as we take uh, this little wafer representing the bread that Jesus passed around, we, with uh, reverence, and with a heart of thanksgiving, we take this bread. So let me pray over it. God, thank you so much for your sacrifice for us, for the way you moved to bring salvation to us. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to allow your body to be broken on that cross so that we could find forgiveness and be set free from the trap of sin that we're in. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat the bread together. Next, Jesus took a cup, a cup of wine, and he passed it around. He said, take, and, take a drink out of this. It represents my blood that's going to be shed for you. And Jesus knew that he would go to the cross, and he would hang there, the blood from his body dripping out. Um, and the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there isn't any forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus, in that moment, as he hung on the cross, his blood shed the payment for your sin and for my sin. And so it is with, again, reverence and thankfulness and a heart of gratitude that we say, God, thank you for your forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to have your blood shed for us, to have your, um, the life drip out of your body to make payment for our sin, to atone for our sin. We are so thankful and so grateful 
Father, help us to, to recognize in this moment what great forgiveness you have brought to us. We praise you and thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink the juice together.